All right. Uh, that's my walk-up song like it's baseball. Whole team winning. So, last week we started a series entitled Whole Team Winning. Babe, you, you can bring the lights up um, if, you, if you don't mind. Um, and so in this series, what we're doing is uh, we're talking about the calling that all of us share, all of us together, to be ambassadors for the gospel to our oikos. And that, that Greek word oikos is simply one that means extended household. And practically for us, what that means is that there are about 8 to 15 people in your life that you are closely connected to. Studies have shown that for most people, there are about 8 to 15 other people inside their circle of influence. Whether that's uh, family, friends, co-workers, um, the person in the cubicle next to you. Uh, for some, it's more than 15. For others, it's less. But on average, there's about 8 to 15 people with whom you speak regularly. You work alongside, that, that you live with, that you hang out with. That is your oikos. And we're talking about the fact that every single one of us is called to be the gospel ambassador to our oikos. Only you can fulfill the mission of bringing the gospel to your oikos. I cannot do that. No one else in this church can do that because you are uniquely connected to a particular group of people. You have a particular group in this world that is exclusively your own. And so you are called to be the gospel minister in that group. You cannot expect a pastor or a church to be with you when you go to work on Monday morning, when you go to class on Monday morning, when you go to practice. You cannot expect that anyone else is going to be with you except for you. It's not realistic to assume that the guy next to you at work is going to be won over for Jesus just because of the fact that you have an awesome pastor. And you do, am I right? Amen? No, no one? <laughs> Um, that guy is more than 90% more likely to come to Jesus because of you. And we, we looked at that stat last week. You are the one who's going to minister to them. You're, you're the one who's going to pray for them, who's going to serve them, who's going to share truth with them, who's going to live a gospel-centered life in front of them, have real honest and open conversations with them because you have a voice in their life. You have a relationship with them. And so what I want us to see tonight is that you don't have to be some sort of a super Christian to fulfill that mission. You don't have to be a gifted evangelist. You don't have to be a master orator. You don't have to ooze charisma or be some influential church leader. You can fully do the work that God has called you to do without any of that, without history ever knowing your name, because it is often through the most unlikely people that God works his most wondrous works most powerfully. Um, so I've used this analogy before in the past, uh, but it's one of my personal favorites, and I couldn't resist using it again. Um, earlier today, my wife uh, came into the office, and she saw my sermon notes, and saw that I was uh, going to be using this, and she was like, you're going to use this analogy again? 
didn't you just use it? And I was like, well, the last time I used it was December of 2017, and before that it was in 2016. So I didn't just use it, but yes, I've used it before. But some of you were in high school then, so it doesn't count, all right? So uh, raise your hand if you're a soccer fan. Any soccer fans in the room? Okay, a few. Kind of, sort of, all right? Um, Tonight, I am going to tell you about the single most unlikely championship in sports history, okay? And I am not making that up. That is not hyperbole. I'm not using a figure of speech. I'm not exaggerating. This is literally, statistically, the greatest underdog story ever. No team has ever faced odds like this one, okay? I'm building this up on purpose, okay? I'm trying to paint a very clear picture of just how unlikely this was. This took place in 2016 in the English Premier League, which is regarded as one of the most uh, elite soccer leagues in the entire world. Um, many of us have at least seen a game on, right, um, with, uh, with the English Premier League. Now, in order to tell you this story, I, I have to set up a little uh, groundwork here to explain to you exactly how the English Premier League works. You see, in the English Premier League, there are multiple levels, multiple divisions. And in these divisions, there's usually about 20 teams. The top four divisions are what you would really consider the professionals, okay? Levels 5 through 11 are amateur leagues. Not like YMCA league amateur, but um, guys working full-time regular jobs and getting paid $40 a week amateur, okay? So there are 11 levels in English soccer, okay? At the top level is where you have the Premier League, okay? And this is the real professional level. This, this is the level where the teams are known worldwide, where if you go anywhere in the world, you will find people wearing their jerseys. You will find people watching their games. That is the Premier League. But not all the same teams are in the Premier League every season, okay? So in the NFL, the same 32 teams are in the league every year. Regardless of the season, it is the same 32 teams, unless franchises begin. But every single year, the teams remain the same. English soccer is different, and in most other countries, it's different. At the end of each season, they take a look at the standings in each of those divisions, and there's movement. So the top three teams from a lower level get to move up to the next level. So the top three teams in level three, for example, the next season are going to be playing in level two. And conversely, the bottom three teams of each level are relegated to the next lowest level in the next season. So there's movement depending on where you finish. And so, theoretically, teams can climb up from lower leagues into the higher leagues. Um, so think about this like Major League Baseball, which is probably more familiar to most of us um, here in America. Below the majors that everyone knows are AAA, AA, and single A. Those are the minor leagues in baseball. So our home team, the South Bend Cubs, is a single A team. 
Now, the players themselves in, in these farm teams are hoping to move up to the big leagues. And so there's movement with players going up and down within these leagues. Every baseball player dreams of moving up eventually to get to the top, to the MLB. But if Major League Baseball worked the same way as the English Premier League, teams would also move up and down. So in 2016, the Cincinnati Reds finished last in the MLB. So for the 2017 season, they would move to AAA. And the Fresno Grizzlies of AAA would have moved up to the MLB because they were the top team in 2016. So that's how the the relegation and promotion structure works. Because of that relegation and promotion structure, there have been 45 different teams that have played in the top level in the English Premier League. But there have only been seven teams that have remained the entire time. So there are very few elite clubs. Only seven have always been in top flight football. Before the 2016 season, only five teams had ever won the championship. Okay? So among these 11 levels of teams, there are hundreds, hundreds of teams in these 11 levels. It is all over the entire country. And there have only been 45 who have ever been in the top league, and only seven have remained there the entire time, and only five have ever won the championship, okay? Part of this is because there is no salary cap in English football. The teams that have the most money pay for the best players, It is built for the rich clubs to always win. That is why only five teams had ever won. Because all the best players get hoarded by the five best teams, and they always, always win. That is, until 2016. When Leicester City Football Club won the Premier League Championship. Prior to 2016, Leicester City had been in the third division. They moved up to the second division and then moved up to the English Premier League in 2014. So they had only been in the Premier League for two seasons. So again, put this in perspective. Think about Major League Baseball. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Hartford Yard Goats. Anyone? Yes? Hartford Yard Goats. Love it. Uh, They play in Dunkin' Donuts Park. Now, imagine the Hartford Yard Goats beating the New York Yankees to win the World Series. Imagine what kind of a sports story that would be. Imagine ESPN headlines, Hartford Yard Goats win the World Series against the Yankees. Everyone would be, like, speechless. It would blow our minds. So think about that kind of picture here. In their first year back to the English Premier League since 2004, Leicester City finished one team above relegation. So in the previous season, they finished one team above relegation. They almost moved down. They started the 2015 season in last place. And they only escaped relegation because in the last game of the season, one penalty kick gave them the one point that they needed to remain in the Premier League. 
So these are the last guys that you would ever think would be winning. In fact, the odds makers had placed the chances of Leicester City winning at 5,000 to 1. Now to put that in perspective, that means that the following things were more likely to happen than for Leicester City to win the English Premier League. Uh, The Loch Ness Monster being proven to exist. Christmas being the warmest day of the year in England. Kim Kardashian being President of the United States by 2020. And Barack Obama playing cricket for England after leaving the Oval Office. Those things were more likely to happen, statistically, than for Leicester City to win the EPL. Their team was comprised of absolute nobodies. No one had ever heard of any of the players on this team. Their top two players were Riyad Mahrez and Jamie Vardy. Okay? At this time, they were hardly household names. They are now, but they were not then. Riyad Mahrez was, uh, was traded to Leicester City from a fourth division team in France. And when Leicester City contacted him, he had never heard of them. In fact, he said in a later interview that he thought they were a rugby team and thought, why is a rugby team calling me? I'm a soccer player. Jamie Vardy, the captain, was an even more unlikely story. Four years prior to being signed by Leicester City, Jamie Vardy was playing in the 7th division of the EPL. The 7th division, making $40 a week and working a part-time job at a medical splint factory. Uh, This dude is no one. To say that this is a ragtag group of nobodies would be an entire understatement. And then there was the manager. The manager that was hired in 2015 was a washed-up 64-year-old man named Claudio Ranieri. And Claudio Ranieri had just been fired from his last job because his team lost to the Faroe Islands. I will give $5 to the first person who can tell me anything about the Faroe Islands. Me neither. Ranieri ran the team like a little league coach. Okay? He would promise the team that if they shut a team out, he would take them out for pizza. So to sum it up, the chances of Leicester City winning the Premier League championship was pretty slim, to say the least. But under the first year of manager Claudio Ranieri, Leicester City pulled off the most unlikely championship in sports history. Again, after starting in last place, only one penalty kick away from relegation, they started the season with an incredible 16-2 and streak. That's 18 games, only two losses. It included a 2-1 to victory against the previous year's champion, Chelsea. Anyone heard of Chelsea? Yeah, we all have. Chelsea was one of the five teams that had won the championship before. In fact, they were the defending champions. And Leicester City went into Chelsea and won 2-1. to In 38 games, Leicester City only won lost 
three times. And if you watch back um, the footage of the sports uh, shows, the, the talk shows, every single game, all the commentators were like, when is the dream run going to end? When is the dream run going to end? Surely this can't continue. This magic is not going to continue. There's one particular interview where one of the leading commentators in English football was asked, well, what about Leicester City? What's going to happen with them? You think they'll win? And he, was, he laughed. He was like, no. Leicester City is not winning the the English Premier League. It's not going to happen. They're having a magical run, but I promise you it's going to come to an end. And then it kept going, and it kept going, and it kept going. And they clip back to this guy, and they show him what he had said before, and he laughed, and he was like, I mean, really, who could have seen this coming? We're all as surprised as everyone else. With only two games remaining in the season... Leicester City clinched the points necessary to win the championship. And the way that the the championship works is it's a point system, so there's not a championship game, but by number of points. And so there's this awesome clip of the Leicester City Football Club at Jamie Vardy's house. And they're watching live one of the other Premier League games happening, knowing that if this particular team wins, they're the champions. And so they're all huddled around the TV, and they see in the final minute a goal being scored, and they all go absolutely nuts. Because they realize they have pulled off the greatest sports story ever told. Jamie Vardy today is one of the captains of the national team for England. Riyad Mahrez is a household name. Claudio Ranieri is in talks to be knighted by the Queen of England. This is not a team that's built on money. It was not built on acclaim. It was not built on pedigree. It was a team pulled together by one man, given a mission, and letting no one stand in their way. Their unstoppable sense of mission and the offer of free pizza propelled them to the pages of history. Currently, the Leicester City Football Club story is in the process of being made into a movie. Because, obviously, who can think of a better underdog story than that? A bunch of normal nobodies accomplishes a mission that no one thought possible. Hopefully, you're beginning to see where I'm going with this. Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 11. And in Acts chapter 11, we will read the story of the most unlikely group of people in the most unlikely place becoming the most influential church in history. So, Acts chapter 11 Verses 19 through 30. If you do not have a Bible, there's, uh, you can find one in the back, or the words will be behind me on the screen. Acts chapter 19, beginning, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. 
the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, every one, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So, let's start breaking this down. Because there are so many beautiful details that are hidden between the lines in this story. Like, if I'd started out today by saying, in 2016, Leicester City Football Club won the English Premier League. You probably would have stared at me and been like, okay, so? Why would that matter to me at all? It wasn't until I began to set some context and say, well, let me tell you why that was so significant. Setting the context uh, of what exactly was going on in the Premier League, that's when you began to say, oh, yeah, there should be a movie made about this because this story is incredible. So that's what we're going to do with this passage today. Because on the surface, it might seem like a, meh, okay, cool, kind of a passage. But this is a Leicester City epic story. It is unlikely, it is awe-inspiring, and it is something that should inspire us to accomplish our mission. So if you're taking notes, here's point number one. The kingdom is built on the power of the gospel not on personal pedigree. The kingdom is built on the power of the gospel, not on personal pedigree. So the first thing I want us to see is in verse 19. So, turning back to verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So, verse 19 tells us that this was a group of people from Jerusalem who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen. And if you're not familiar with that story, that is found in Acts chapter 7, going into verse, uh, I'm sorry, into chapter 8. And there in Acts chapter 7, it tells us about the stoning of Stephen. Now when, the, when they heard these things, they were enraged and ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So that is the story that verse 19 in chapter 11 references. Okay, so in chapter 7 and 8, there's an introduction to these people, and they're scattered, and then their story is picked back up here in chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. So back there in the stoning of Stephen, Saul begins to ravage and persecute the church. He is going from house to house. He's dragging people off to prison. He's at their executions, approving of their executions. And because of this persecution, the church is scattered. It says all except for the disciples. And they go everywhere. They travel to Judea and Cyprus, and Antioch, and Phoenicia. And so here in chapter 11, we find this particular group of people that lands in Antioch. They travel to Antioch and begin preaching the gospel, it says, to the Greeks, the the Hellenists, where it says, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. Okay, so that means the Gentiles. Verse 19, it says that some of them were speaking only to the Jews. This group is speaking to everyone, to all who would listen. So let's now focus on a couple of things in verse 20. Some of them and Antioch. Okay, so verse 20 But there were some of them. There were some of them. Men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Here's what we need to know about some of them. These men were not professional preachers. They weren't famous disciples. They were not apostles. These men were not trained orators. They were not super Christians, okay? This was not the Premier League players. This was not the people who had the name and the pedigree, okay? These were not the superstars. These were not the people being paid millions. These were average men and women, average people who just simply spoke the truth of the gospel. And as we will soon see, they start the greatest church planting movement in history. And we only know them as some of them. Isn't that wild? The greatest church planting movement in history, and we don't even know their names. All we know is some of them. Only God knows who these people were. None of them have Bible books named after them. None of them have cities or churches named after them that that we know of. 
Again, these are not influential church leaders, apostles, disciples trained by Jesus himself, well-known evangelists with a blue check mark and a lot of followers on Twitter. Not those guys, okay? These were just normal, ordinary people making $40 a week at a medical splint factory in the 7th division. That is who these people are. Now look around this room. We in this church do not have anything of critical acclaim. We don't have a famous preacher. We don't have much money. We don't have much in terms of resources. In the grand scheme of things, we are just a small group of nobodies. But we have the very same thing that these people had. The gospel of Jesus Because that is what made the impact on history. Not them. Not their pedigree. Not their resources. Not their name. It was the power of the gospel of Jesus. And so if we place our hope in that, I'm confident that this church will do amazing things. Now the second detail that I said that we need to see in this verse is where they are located. Some of them We're in Antioch. Antioch was not a quaint little religious town in the Bible Belt. Okay? Antioch was one of the largest and most influential cities in the empire. It was a cultural uh, melting pot. Antioch, though, was specifically known for being an immoral place. It was Sin City. And that makes this story even more unlikely. The temple, I'm I'm sorry, the sanctuary of Daphne was located only five miles away. The cult of Artemis was uh, practicing there. This gave the city of Antioch a reputation as being a place specifically where sexual immorality was celebrated. Worship to Daphne was enjoyed in part by partaking in temple prostitutes. Sex was on sale on every corner, on every street. This was Las Vegas times a thousand. In fact, one biblical commentator remarked that if you took Las Vegas and you mixed it with Sodom and Gomorrah, then you would have Antioch. And out of all places that you would pick to be the center of a church planting movement, out of all the places that any of us would choose to be HQ for the missionary journeys, Antioch would be the last place on earth any of us would pick. That would be the place that we would circle on the map and go, yeah, anybody but, anywhere but there, okay? Because uh, nothing church related is going to work there. They don't do church in Antioch. So we have incredibly unlikely people in an incredibly unlikely place. The gospel has no business surviving in a place like this. This church should be over before it even starts. But I want you to see what happens, okay? We'll start with the end result and then we'll circle back to the process because the process is what's most practical to us. But what's the end result of the church in Antioch? Well, verse 22 tells us that some really great things are happening that get noticed by HQ. 
headquarters for the early church in Jerusalem. It says, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Okay, so the English Premier League notices what's going on over here in Antioch. And so they send one of the superstars. They're like, Barnabas, go check it out. Something crazy is happening in Antioch. We need you to scout. We're going to send you scouting over there so we can see what is going on. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So, Barnabas is sent on this mission to Antioch to oversee, to, to check things out, to encourage, to, to scout. But then, Barnabas does more than just encourage. Barnabas does more on this mission than probably what anyone anticipated. So, Barnabas shows up to encourage the church. And then, he himself is encouraged by this church. All right, so he's come down from HQ, and he's seeing what's going on, and he's blown away by it. And he says, you know what? There's something special here. We, we, need, to, we need to focus on this. We, we need to add something to this. And then he does the most unlikely thing that you could possibly imagine. He goes, and he gets Saul. So here he is in Antioch. He's like, oh man, this church is going awesome. This is great. God is doing big things. What should I do? I know exactly who should be pastoring this church. Saul. So then we learn that Saul becomes, uh, this is Saul's home church. Okay, he's set up there. He's, He's got his first teaching position. This is where Paul starts pastoring. And then what we find out in the later verses and on throughout the book of Acts is that this is the home church that sends Saul on his missionary journeys. Now, for any of you who are not paying attention or not aware, Saul is Paul. Okay? Same guy. Saul is Paul. Paul, the greatest evangelist who has ever lived. The the man who planted more churches than anyone. The man who, outside of Jesus, has led more people to the faith than anyone in history. The man through whom most of us are Christians because of. Because of the work of Saul, because of the work of Paul, we are here. And this church, this church in Antioch, was his home church. And in case you've forgotten, let's circle back to remind us all of who these people are. These, some of them. This group of people in Antioch. They were those who were scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen. And who was the leader of the persecution in connection with Stephen? Saul. It it, it was Saul who did that. 
And now 11 years later, this becomes Saul's home church. The church where he becomes the pastor. All of them are sitting in the congregation there as a result of this dude's violence against the church. And now he's their pastor teaching them. How nuts is that? And then this church begins the greatest church planting movement in human history. Are you kidding me? This is some Leicester City type-ish right here, okay? They're cast out by persecution, and these people spread the gospel in the most unlikely place, start the most unlikely church in human history, pastored by the guy who persecuted them 11 years later. And again, we don't even know their names. Dear God, dear God, let us be the type of church that impacts history and no one even knows our name. But they remember what we did for the one name. Did you catch the detail that was at the end of verse 27? It says, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It was here, here in Antioch, that the disciples were first called Christians. So their names were forgotten, but the one name was lifted higher than ever. The only name that we remember them by is Christian. The one name that is given to this group of people uniquely is Christian. The only thing that we can identify them by is the one name. They were the first ones to be called by his name. My friends, your gospel impact will not be determined by your pedigree. It will not be determined by your name, your image, or your likeness. It will only be carried by the power of the gospel working through you. What might that look like? Well, let's circle back around to talk about a little bit of the process. Let's go practical. So, here's point number two. Point number two. Some of them decided the gospel was for all of them. Some of them decided that the gospel was for all of them. So we're going to look back again at verse 20. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, we have to contrast that with verse 19. Verse 19, it says... Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So, there are those who spread out, and, and there's, there's a group of them that, that only speak the truth within their group. They, they speak only to their countrymen. They're in foreign places, and they go to the synagogues, and they preach the gospel to the Jews, which is a good thing. It's a great thing. But then there are some of them that say, we're not just going to preach in the synagogues, 
we're going to preach the gospel to whomever. We're also going to talk to the Hellenists. We're going to speak to the Greeks. We're going to go wherever we possibly can. Now, interestingly here, when it says, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. If we're honest, for most of us, the word preaching can be a little bit intimidating, right? It kind of has a bad connotation, like no one wants to be known as the guy who's always preaching, except maybe the preacher, okay? There are people who refer to me as preacher, which I don't mind at all. But the cultural context of the word is kind of negative, am I right? Like, we don't want to just wake up and go start preaching somewhere, okay? And we have this phrase in our common vernacular, stop preaching to me, right? Because preaching isn't necessarily a positive. And we think of preaching as being like what I'm doing now, standing up in front of a group of people, expounding on the truths of Scripture. And most people think to themselves, I can't do that. That's not for me. I'm not gifted in that way. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a great public speaker. I freeze when, I, when I'm up in front of people. I mean, most of us, I think, probably took a public speaking class in college, right? And, and I read a statistic one time that the number one fear in America is public speaking. Number two is death. <laughs> Isn't that funny? People are more afraid of speaking in public than they are of dying. And then like three and four was like spiders and snakes and, and heights and normal things. Public speaking. Nobody wants to do that, right? Nobody wants to preach. But interestingly, when it says that they were preaching the Lord Jesus, this word in the Greek does not mean what we think it means. It means to tell. It means to start talking. It means to break the silence. So again, okay, these are normal people in normal jobs, normal settings, and what they do is they start talking. They break the silence. They tell. They speak. Not like a public orator, but like a person speaking to another person. They start telling their co-workers about Jesus. They start telling their neighbors about Jesus. They start meeting people in the marketplace and just having conversations about Jesus. And what happened as a result of that? Again, the greatest church planting movement in all of history. From some of them, just speaking, just telling and, and here's something that we need to understand, okay? When we think about our mission in Jesus, when, when we think about the Great Commission, the telling part is key, okay? We cannot fulfill the mission without telling. Telling is something that we cannot leave out, all right? We have this idea in American Christian culture that our responsibility is just simply to live good lives near people. I'm going to be near other people and living a good life, okay? So I'm going to live out my faith. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to say no to temptation. Uh, I'm going to be the guy that doesn't drink, smoke, cuss, or run with those that do, 
And because I do that, then other people will notice, and then I can invite them to church where the pastor will get up and preach the gospel to them. There's this, uh, this common quote that is floating around the interwebs, and maybe you have seen it. It is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, and it says, Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Anyone seen that? Seen it floating around? Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. St. Francis of Assisi. Now, two problems with that. Two problems with that quote. Number one, St. Francis didn't say it. It is falsely attributed to St. Francis. The man did not say those words, okay? You can Google it and verify. St. Francis would be pretty mad that he has been given this quote. Okay, so that's the first problem. St. Francis didn't say it. The second problem is it's royally stupid, okay? It is just flat out dumb. In response to this quote, I saw the most brilliant response several years ago where someone said, to say, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words, is equivalent to saying, feed the poor at all times and if necessary, use food. Why? Because the gospel is the word of Jesus. You can't preach the gospel without words. You you can't do it. Living a good life is an important part, but it is not what we are called to. We are called to preach the gospel, to tell, to break the silence, to start talking. Now, that conversation often happens as a result of the life that you're living But you are not praying for someone to just see you having a good life over there and hope they go to church. What you're praying for is for someone to see what you're doing and how you're living and then come and talk to you and be like, yo, what's up with you? Well, uh, well, let me tell you what's up with me. Among other things, Jesus. What do you mean, Jesus? Sounds weird. Kind of is. I get it. Um, I follow a dude from 2,000 years ago um, that you can't see. It's kind of weird, but let me explain. We are called to start speaking. We're called to pray for opportunities to tell. And here's the promise. God will take care of the rest. Because remember, it's not about us. It's about God. It's not about our pedigree It's not about our gifts. It's not about how good we are. It's about him. God will take care of the rest. And these people believed that with all of their might. These people believed that it wasn't about pedigree. These people believed that it wasn't about having super Christians. Do you know how we know they believed this? Well, look at verses 29 and 30. Here's how. Here's how the passage ends. Okay, verse 29. So the disciples determined every one according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, if you noticed, in this passage, there are only two people who are named. There's just two, Barnabas and Saul. The rest of them are unnamed. 
Barnabas and Saul are the only ones named. Barnabas and Saul, as we know, are the impact. Yes, I love it. The whole team is winning. Barnabas and Saul, only two guys named here. These two guys come to this church. They start leading, and for a year, it says, one year, they're all there together, and, and Barnabas and Saul are encouraging and teaching. And I think you would agree that if there was one person who you wanted to lead your church, it would be Paul. Again, remember, okay? Greatest evangelist that has ever lived. The single most impactful Christian in history. So if that dude shows up, and says, hey, I'm going to be your pastor, you're going to be like, yes, stay here, don't go anywhere, all right? We will pay you whatever you want, all right? When, when Cristiano Ronaldo shows up and says, I'm going to play for y'all, the club pulls out the pocketbook and says, whatever you want, come and play, come and stay, retire here, be our guy. But instead of doing that, these people do the most insane thing you could ever do, which is send him out. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Not, ju- not just Saul, okay, Barnabas too. These are the two important guys that show up in this church. And this church's response is, hey, nice having you. Thanks for coming. Uh, why don't you be our missionaries? Get on out there. We'll take care of it here. And we still don't know their names. That is awesome. That's how strongly these people believed. We don't have to be one of the super Christians. We don't even have to have one here as the leader of our church. We can just continue to do what we've been doing, which is speaking, telling, breaking the silence. And God's going to do the rest. God's going to take care of it. And Saul and Barnabas, they're going to go out. We're going to send them out, and they're going to do the work of the Lord. And they'll come back, and we'll talk about it, and we'll encourage and equip each other. And we're going to send them out again. And then we're going to keep doing our thing. We're going to keep doing our thing. So, let's get insanely practical. I announced these things last week, and I'm announcing them once more. In the back, you will find these. Now, Let me be totally honest for a moment. I was supposed to print more of these this week because there's only a few back there. And so last week, I made myself a note. Print more of these cards. Do you know who forgot to look at the note that he wrote himself? This guy. That's right. So there's a few of these back here. More, Lord willing, will be printed next week. Okay? And you're asking, well, what are these? Well, on the front, it has the word oikos in a fancy font and the number 8 to 15, like we talked about. There are 8 to 15 people in your life that you have some impact over. On the back of this card are blanks that are numbered. Some simple instructions. And these are the blanks where you will write the names of the people in your oikos that when you pray and ask God, 
Lord, who are the people in my circle that I can be ministering to? Who are the people that I know don't know Jesus, but you have put me in their lives to pray for them, to minister to them, to serve them, to love them in whatever way I possibly can, to ask you every day that you'll open a door for me to tell them. Remember the statistic that we showed last week. More than 90% of people who come to know Jesus do so as a result of the invitation and ministry of someone that they know. Not from a church event, not from a flyer or a tract. Those things happen, but those are anomalies. 90 plus percent of people come to know the Lord because someone who is in their life loved them and spoke to them in that direction prayed for them, didn't give up on them, built relationship with them. As my wife likes to say, building a bridge strong enough to carry a conversation across. That's something that only you can do. I can't do that. I don't know those people. You do. You already hopefully have some of those names in your mind. Oh, I know this dude. That dude needs Jesus, (laughs) right? So go and grab one of those cards Start praying, Lord, who are those people? Who are, the, who are the names of those people? And then start writing those things down. And you'll see on the instructions on this card, number two is pray. Pray daily for your oikos. Pray for them by name. Because you know what's going on in their life. You know the things that they're dealing with. You, you know that their grandmother just passed away. You know that... Someone who they love is going through a difficult time. You know that they're having trouble at work. You know the good things going on in their life. You have a unique opportunity to pray. Third, you'll see, invest. You figure out ways. Lord, Lord, help me to have ways to invest in these people. Fourth, written on here, is invite. Inviting them to church, but also included in this is invite them into conversation. And remember we talked about last week, God is preparing both sides. If he's preparing you to speak, he's preparing them to listen. You pray and you seek and invite. And then finally, prepare. Prepare yourself to live the way that you should, to speak the way that you should. And I would add to what's written on this card, prepare to be the one to lead them to Jesus. And I'm excited about the future of this church, that as we do this together... We're going to see you leading your oikos to faith. And then when they do, you will be the ones to baptize them, not me. When we put a baptismal pool up here because someone's come to know Jesus, because Dylan's been praying for them, he's going to baptize that dude. And I'm going to stand here and I'm going to clap. That's, that's going to be my role. So grab a card, start writing these names down, and pray. And as a church, we're going to pray every one of us for our own oikos. And then we're going to pray for each other's oikos. And when we're talking about prayer requests, one of those common questions is going to be, how can I pray for your oikos? How can I pray for you as you're ministering to your oikos? This is part of the fabric of what we're going to be. Number two, um, if you go to the next one there, buddy. I talked about this last week as well is uh, this scripture memorization tool that we're going to be using starting December the 1st. Well, the first week of December, anyway. Together as a church, we will be memorizing scripture. 
Okay, together as a church, we're going to be walking through the same passages. So, uh, starting the first week of December, if it arrives in time, hopefully, you're going to find a box on that table. Big, fancy, yellow box. And in it, there will be all of these pictures, okay, designs like this. And they'll be on a little keychain tag, they'll be on a card, they'll be on a temporary tattoo. You guys take those. And these are going to be the verses that we memorize together as a church. I can't wait to do this with my kids, right? They are beyond excited to collect all of the keychains, okay? My son is a collector. He's like, I want to get every single one of them until I collect the whole set. Well, there's a lot of verses. And as long as we're doing this, there's going to be another one. And as you can see, the way that it works, each letter corresponds to a word. So that letter is the first letter in the first word. So you can read the verse together with the picture. Easy memorization tool. Put a temporary tattoo somewhere that you'll see it. And then together as a church, we're going to be memorizing these things. Okay? We're going to center ourselves on the word. The, uh, the opportunities that we're going to have to um, focus on these verses and teach on these verses. The devotional material. Dwell has stuff every day on their Instagram on whatever the verse is. Um, we'll be uploading our own content. Together as a church, we're going to memorize scripture. And then finally, finally number three is what I'm calling a captain's meeting. And I'm calling it a captain's meeting because if you call something a prayer meeting, people don't show up. All right? Let's just be honest. (laughs) That's just real. If you call something a prayer meeting, people are like, sounds boring. No thanks. Not for me. So what is a captain's meeting? Captain's meeting will be for all the men in the church. I'm not being sexist, okay? I just happen to be a dude. And so, all the men in the church, every Monday at 7.30, starting tomorrow, on Zoom, 20 minutes. There's no homework, there's no frills, there's no nothing. We're going to gather together, and for 20 minutes, we're going to ask three questions. How can we pray for you? How can we pray for you as you lead your family spiritually? And how can we pray for your oikos and your ministry to them? Those three questions. And then we're going to pray and we're going to log off. Boom, boom, boom. Done. Easy. Again, no homework, no hard work. Just log on. If you want that link, let me know. Because as we pray together as a church, as we memorize scripture together as a church, as we sign up for mission together as a church, oh man, I'm so excited to see what God has in store for us. I'm so excited to see what lives are going to be changed. I'm so excited to see what chains are going to be broken, how people are going to be impacted, how you guys are going to see God moving in your lives like you've never seen before, and how this church, where no one knows our name, where, where no one outside of this building knows who we are, this church full of nobodies is going to change the world. Let's do that together. Grace, if you don't mind, um, you go ahead and come up. As I, as I pray, I want you to begin to start thinking about 